You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5 uh, verses 15 through 21 is where we're going to be today. And we're continuing in this one another's series. And today we're going to talk about what it means to submit to one another. Paul here is, um, uh, he's doing something he normally does in his letters. Uh, If you think about the letters of Galatians and Philippians and Colossians, I was trying to combine Philippians and Colossians there for a moment, Um, the the pattern is very similar. He starts off with very um, strong doctrinal uh, theological teachings about God, Jesus, the Savior, the, the Spirit, the Kingdom, and how all these things have been at work. And then at some point in these letters, he switches to a very practical uh, teaching or instruction. So if you're very familiar with the letter of Ephesians, you may have picked up on that. Then uh, in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, 1 through 14, the preceding uh, passages before we're, we're going to start today in verse 15, uh, really begin that practical instruction. And Paul uses words like, therefore, and I therefore, and all those words are there to say to the reader Because of these great truths, this is now who you're supposed to be. And and this is what I want us to understand here. Paul doesn't do this for the church at Ephesus or Colossae or Philippi or for us today in the modern world. He doesn't do this uh, just for no reason. Today we're talking about submitting, and uh, I would encourage you this week to take Ephesians 5.22 and follow that through into chapter 6 and see how he then talks about submitting in earthly relationships, submitting in marriage, submitting uh, uh, in terms of children and parents, and submitting in terms of a servant, a master, which really kind of mirrors our employee-employee, our employer relationship in our modern world. But I bring your attention to all that to say... This section ends with learning how to submit to one another in the body of Christ. And he does so intentionally because if we're not willing to submit to one another, chances are in all those other earthly relationships, there's not going to be any submission there either. With all things, the church sets the tone. We talk about things like forgiveness and love for our enemies and love for our neighbors and and all the various things that are taught throughout the scriptures. And if the church is not doing that, then it's a really good chance that in our own individual lives and in the parts of the world and the community we inhabit, we won't do those things on those bases either. And so that's why here he's going to talk about submitting to one another before he even gets into the issues of the other submissions, which hopefully you'll read uh, this week. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, if you want to follow along with me, and then we'll dive into it. He writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence 
for Christ. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, and then in particular verses 18 through 21, are really kind of one big long run-on sentence. Um, Paul would not have received a, a good grade in grammar in English by writing this. Uh, but it was a very standard way of, of writing in that time. And so uh, as such, I don't want to do too much today in terms of trying to separate these things out, but I want us to kind of look at them collectively from verses 15 through 21, because they all interchange, they all interconnect, they all uh, deal with the next command or the next teaching that Paul does. So if you look at verse 15, he begins this, our, our phrase for today is that we are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with submission. We are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with submission. So how we begin that is, he begins in verse 15, he uses this word, walk. He says, look carefully then, how you walk. When you see the word walk in the scriptures, it's a word that means to live or to behave in a very specific manner. It's a word that he uses quite often through his writings. Uh, here in Ephesians, for example, in these beginning passages coming out of chapter 4, uh, he uses that word in chapter 4 verses 1 and 17 and then in chapter 5 and verse 2 and verses 8 through 10 and then again now in 15. What Paul is teaching through all this is that there's an understanding that there is an expectation of how our lives should look. We would probably put it in this um, vernacular in our modern day age with this phrase, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. We say that about sports teams, right? The preseason and all the hype and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, if you're going to talk that talk, you better walk that walk or politicians, or businesses, or whoever makes a claim to something, our response back to that is, okay, well, your, your words are big. Let's see what your actions end up coming out to be. And the reality of it is, for uh, us, we need to come to this understanding and foundation that the Scriptures teach there are expectations on those of us who say we are in Christ. No, none of us are perfect. No, none of us are never going to make a mistake, but there are expectations. There's an expectation through the scriptures that we are to walk, live in a specific way or in specific ways because of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so look kind of, let's kind of unpack this through verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, he says, don't walk in an unwise fashion, walk in a very wise fashion or with wisdom. And so he, he kind of bookends this here, the beginning of verse 15, he starts with this phrase, look carefully how you walk. That just simply means walk accurately, walk exactly, walk deliberately, not haphazardly, not, not, not having a plan prepared in your life, but, but walk with delibera deliberation, walk with accuracy, walk with an exact understanding of what it means to be a son or daughter of God through Christ Jesus. Um, sometimes I think we read, for example, like in James, James talks about how our lives are but a vapor, or but a mist, and we may not even be here tomorrow. And I think sometimes we use that as an excuse. Well, I don't really have to plan anything in my life because I could be gone tomorrow. And while what James says is theologically and biblically true, Jesus also says throughout the Gospels, you should think about things that you're doing. Just as a farmer plans for his crops, you should consider what it means to be called my disciple. 
And so we shouldn't take the, the one and say, well, I can just live however I want to and let it shake out however it does. We walk, we look carefully as we walk, he says. And then look how he bookends that into verse 16, making the best use of the time, but the days are evil. So essentially what he's done here is the two wise ways in, we walk, in which we walk are that we walk exactly, accurately, carefully, and then we walk making the best use of our time. I have um, on my iPhone, and I think it's available on all iPhones. You, if you have a high phone, you might have turned it off maybe, and I'm not sure if it's on the other brands or not. But every Sunday night, this little notification pops up on my iPhone, and it says screen time usage. And it tells me for the last week how much I've been on my phone to the hour, the minute, and the second. And then I, I can even take that then and I can expand it out and how much was on the Facebook app, how much was on the Twitter app, how much was I on the Instagram app, how much was I on any of the, the apps or the things that are going on on my phone. And that, when it comes on every Sunday night, it's immediately a convicting notification, right? Now, sometimes it's encouraging because sometimes I look at it and go, ooh, I did a lot better than I did the week before, <laughs> Because it'll tell you your percentage is either up or down based on the previous week. And so sometimes it's encouraging, but oftentimes I still look at it and go, wow, what could I have spent those hours and those minutes on in a different way? Paul says we make the best use of our time. And I think one of the issues that sometimes clouds it for us in terms of how we deal with our time is we've fallen back into a trap that existed historically centuries ago, and that is that there's a, a distinction in my life and in your life between what we call the sacred and the secular. The sacred is, by definition, things that are dedicated or set apart for service or the worship of God. Secular is, by definition, worldly things or things that are just not spiritual. And so what we do sometimes is we take a building such as this and we say, well, this is a sacred place. And uh, this is a sacred uh, table where we serve the Lord's Supper from. And there are sacred places within this building where we have Bible studies and Sunday schools and so forth. Or maybe an event that we go to and that's a sacred sacred event because of what we're doing because of the agenda but then we make this self-distinction but then everything outside of that is just secular and here's the issue with that when we make that distinction it becomes easy to be time wasters because we say this time set apart for God this time is mine but the incarnation of Jesus does not allow that if God had intended to keep things sacred and secular, meaning a distinction between the two, there would have been no need for the Son to come. But when Jesus is born into this world, it is the sacred entering the secular. And it is the sacred entering the secular to then change every human life that trusts in him after that fact. Um, A.W. Tozer um, has a book called The Pursuit of God, and let me just say this real quick before I read what he writes. Um, if you want to wreck yourself spiritually in a good way, start picking up some books by A.W. Tozer and be challenged and changed by his insight. But he's talking about the sacrament of living in this book. 
And he discusses this issue, and I'm going to kind of bounce around a little bit from it, but he's talking about the reality that in the Old Testament, this was the way it existed. God localized himself in the cloud and the fire, and later when the tabernacle had been built, he dwelt in the fiery manifestation of the Holy of Holies. By innumerable distinctions, God taught Israel the difference between holy and unholy, or sacred and secular. There were holy days, holy vessels, holy garments. There were washings, sacrifices, offerings of many kinds. By these means, Israel learned that God is holy. He says it was this that he was teaching them, not the holiness of things or places, but the holiness of Jehovah. And then he says, but then came the great day Christ appeared. The Old Testament schooling was over, and when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, or torn from top to bottom, and the Holy of Holies was opened to everyone who would enter into faith. And then he goes ahead and says, shortly after, Paul and others took up the cry of freedom, declared all meats clean, every day holy, all places sacred, and every act acceptable to God. See, the, the, the first way that you and I learn not to waste our time is to understand that all of our time is sacred. The first way you and I learn to walk carefully and walk in wisdom and to not make uh, use, useless amounts of time in our lives is to be acknowledging that because Christ has come and because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us is what the Bible teaches us, every moment is sacred. Every place is sacred. Today you will leave here and some of you will go to a restaurant and by virtue of the Holy Spirit living in you, that will be a sacred restaurant. By virtue of the Holy Spirit living in you, if you go to school tomorrow, that school will be a sacred place. That place of business will be a sacred place. Where you go to do your recreating will be a sacred place. And your homes will be a sacred place. And so what Paul is trying to help us to see here is in this understanding of how we walk and walk wisely, we don't waste our time because all of our time is now sacred. And so what, what that little prompt on Sunday nights does when my iPhone does that, does for me is it, it, it reminds me to ask this question, has, and then I fill in the blank, in the last week been the best use of my time? Because sometimes what it prompts me to think is not about times that I was on my phone, but times I was doing something else through the week. Has that, was that, whatever the blank is filled with, the best use of my time as Paul is commanding us to have here? Now, I understand the pushback because it's the same pushback my brain gives me, but I need some downtime. I don't think Paul intends or the scriptures intend for us to think we can never have any downtime. We, we had some, some friends over Friday night for game night, and it was wonderful fellowship and food and downtime. It was a much-needed reprieve from the business of the week. But understand this. Jesus took downtime too. His downtime was associated with getting himself away and praying. It's okay for you and I to seek some downtime every now and then. But the downtime that ought to dominate our lives is the downtime of removing ourselves from the distractions and the busyness of this world and getting ourselves committed into praying getting ourselves committed into reading the word, getting ourselves committed into the spiritual disciplines that we need, and reminding ourselves that indeed what Paul says here is we should not be wasting our days. He moves on, verse 17. 
Therefore, do not be foolish. He says, remember the therefore is always to tell us that there's something previous and what is it there for? Well, it's there for us to understand, not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It connects here to verse 16. Foolish living squanders the time that we've been given. And foolishness in the Bible specifically has to do with a lacking of wisdom. Foolish living is living that lacks in wisdom. And what the Bible promises us, what James writes in his letter in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, is that if any of us lack wisdom, we may ask of it from God and he will give it to us. So if there are areas in our lives where we lack wisdom, and in those areas we lack that wisdom, and because of that we are living foolishly in those areas of our lives, the promise of Scripture is if you ask for wisdom in that, God will give it to you. And thereby, by gaining wisdom, we then do not live foolishly, but we make the best use of our time. Again, connecting 17 and 16. He goes on, verse 18. Then do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We, we, we often want to take the very surface level of this and go, yep, see, Paul's talking about drinking. Let me go on and say this for the record. It's going to be on video so everybody can go back and look. Drunkenness is a sin. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Drinking to get drunk is a sin. The state of being drunk is a sin. The habitual lifestyle of being drunk is a sin. Paul's talking about drunkenness here being a sin. But you got to make this distinction here with Ephesus. And the distinction is this. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He's making a contrast. Well, what is he contrasting? He's contrasting what was going on in the day of the city of Ephesus. The Greek and Roman god worship that existed through that time frame was unbelievable. Um, This week, read Acts 19. And read about Paul's time in Ephesus, where in Ephesus there was this great temple, became known as one of the seven wonders of the world, this great temple to the goddess Artemis, uh, or also known as Diana. And read in Acts 19 what God did through Paul there. But also woven throughout all of the God worship was worship to this God known as Dionysus, or also known as Bacchus, the God of wine. And here's, here's what would go on. Plutarch, the Greek historian, writes of the entrance of Mark Antony, the Roman leader, into the city of Ephesus in 49 B.C., so some 50 years almost before Christ comes. When Antony made his entry into Ephesus, women arranged, them, arranged themselves like bacchanals, men and boys like satyrs and pans. They led the way before him. The city was full of ivy and harps and pipes and flutes. The people of Ephesus hailing him as Dionysus, the giver of joy. So Mark Anthony comes in in this big processional and all the people of Ephesus turn out to, to greet him and they're They're gathered in festive gear and festive nature, but they view him as this god of wine, Dionysus. He goes on to say, the process of the worship of Dionysus was to have the effect of bringing them into direct communion with him. If he, the god of wine, was well pleased with their riotous living, he would be pleased to fill them with his spirit. 
So it wasn't just that this big festival was going on. It wasn't just that this big celebration of this Roman God was going on. They were intentionally rioting in their living. They were intentionally living in their drunkenness. They were intentionally living in their sexual morality. And all of that connected to the belief that if he's pleased with that in our lives, he himself will fill us with his spirit. You see the contrast Paul's making? He says, don't be drunk, which leads to all this debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He's speaking directly to them to have them to understand that what you thought was possible with this false God is actually possible with the true God. And it doesn't require you to get drunk and it doesn't require you to live in a debaucherous way and it doesn't require you to live in sexual morality. It just requires you to be yielding to his Spirit. And in doing so, you can be filled with that spirit. It's quite likely that in this church in Ephesus, there were people who had come out of that pagan lifestyle and had continued to pull some of that lifestyle in with them. And Paul's writing to them and saying, no, you, you don't have to do it this way any longer. The God of heavens and earth, the creator of the universe, is welcome to have his spirit dwell within you without any of this other nonsense. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment because I want us to understand this. Being filled with the spirit is what leads us to then being able to submit to one another. Because to be filled with the spirit, I and you and anyone who is in Christ have to submit to the Spirit. If we do not submit to the Holy Spirit of God, He cannot fill us. If we do not yield our lives to the Holy Spirit of God, there is no room for Him because what is taken up in our hearts and our spirits are our wants and our needs and our desires. And so when we push that away and do not submit ourselves to be filled by Him, we then can no longer even think about what it looks like to submit to one another. We're filled with the Spirit that we might be filled with submission because we submit to Him first. Continuing on, verse 19. After we are filled with the Spirit, as we are filled with the Spirit, He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Last week's blog post addressed um, the place in Colossians where some of this very similar language is used. And he, he writes this, and he says, addressing one another. Addressing really is just simple conversation within the body of Christ. And he says, you address one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul's not describing that our lives should be like musical theater. Okay? I, I love my kids, especially my three girls. But sometimes my home sounds like a Disney Broadway channel. And sometimes they're singing stuff that comes from shows. Sometimes, like Kiki, she's, I'm going to the bathroom now. I'm coming to eat my supper. Paul's not saying address one another in that way. What he is address, saying is we address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that are things that make us joyful. He's really describing what it looks like for the believer in Christ to be joyful with one another. A, a phrase that we often have in, in our culture sometimes is a song in your heart. 
right? There's nothing like a sunny, crisp fall day to put a song in your heart. And again, that doesn't mean that we're actually walking around singing about the leaves or singing about the sun, but it just means we're walking around in a state of joy, that there's a song in our heart that, that leads us to live among one another in a joyful state, not in a miserable state, not in a bitter state, not in a mm, state, but a joyful state in the Spirit of God. And he looks, look at what he says here. He makes a connection. These are really two separate phrases. Addressing one another and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The first is how we are dealing with one another in community. Be filled with the Spirit that you may address one another, you may communicate with one another, you may speak with one another in a joyful song in your heart type of way. I believe Paul's intent here is both in everyday living and in the sense of our worship together. That when we come to corporately worship together, be it a Sunday morning or some other specialized time that, that we have going on, there's a sense in which I am somewhat responsible for your worship and you are somewhat responsible for mine. Because we are all collectively supposed to be joyful in our worship. And then outside of that piece, it's the everyday understanding of addressing, of speaking, of communicating, of conversing with one another in the body of Christ. But then that second command is more of an individual piece, making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's really the same kind of intent, but it really speaks more to what we do as individuals when we're by ourselves. And again, here's the issue, right? I said earlier, the church sets the tone in all these things, right? If individually I'm not seeking joy then corporately I won't seek joy with you either. If individually I'm not looking to live with a song in my heart and be joyful, and in just a moment we'll talk about giving thanks, then when we come together, I, I probably am not going to be able to make that switch immediately and transform over. What we do individually affects what we do corporately and community-wise. And so he says, we address one another, we make melody with one another, continuing in that same vein. Look at verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of this joyful identification of being filled with the Spirit. And, and when the Bible talks about filling or being filled with the Spirit, understand it's always written in this way, that it is a continual thing. You don't get filled with the Spirit and then run out completely and then have to get refilled. It's always written in this understanding that there is a continual filling of the Spirit. It's like somebody offering you a cup of coffee and telling you to say when, and you just never say when, and the coffee just keeps running over the edges. There's supposed to be in our lives a continual filling of the Spirit, and it leads to how we address one another, and it leads to how we walk in joy, and it leads to us giving thanks. Giving thanks for the known and the unknown. Giving thanks in all circumstances. Giving thanks and getting out of the, 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 the lie or the, the snare that we are somehow deserving of something and instead being thankful for everything when it comes our way. When, when a child grows up and they, they have this expectation of deserving, in other words, when they have this expectation that everything that comes their way is because they deserve it, what happens to that child very frequently is that they then become less thankful because I deserved what I got on my birthday. I deserved that big Christmas present. I deserved those $20 for those A's. 
Well, that would have been nice in the 1980s. That, that expectation of deserving minimizes our thankfulness. And there's, there's not anything in my life or your life as a Christ follower that we are deserving of other than the grace and the mercy and the love of God through Jesus Christ. If God never does one more thing for me, he has done all that he needed to do for me. And so we don't walk around with an expectation of deserving. We walk around with an attitude of thankfulness, of joy, of being filled with the Spirit. And that leads to really the main phrase for us today. Look at how he ends it in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm aware that some translations say something along the lines of a fear of God. It's all the same. We don't need to make mountains out of molehills about the difference of that phrase. It's that we submit to one another because we acknowledge in our lives just who he is. Reverence or fear is a word that, depending on how it's used, can either mean profound respect and awe, or it can mean fear as in where you kind of want to either fight or, or fly, right? In Luke 5, 26, when Jesus heals that paralyzed man, it says, amazement seized them all. They were glorified God and were filled with awe, the same word that he uses here for reverence or for fear. We're filled with awe, saying we've seen extraordinary things. So that crowd was not fearful of God in that moment, but they were in awe of God. The respect, the, 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 the profound understanding of who Christ was in front of them. But in Matthew 14, 26, when he's walking on the water, Matthew says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, as a ghost and cried out in fear. There, it's the same Greek word that then translates into fear, but it has a very different intent to it. It's, it's, as I've used this example before, it's like when we use the English word bank. You can sit on the bank of a river. You can take your money and put it in or out of a bank. You can bank a basketball off the backboard into the goal. It's different intentions, but the same word. Here, Paul uses this idea of reverence or fear to remind us of just who he is. Of just who Christ is. Of just who the Father is. Of just who the Spirit of God is. That we should be in awe. That we should be reverent before them. Reverency doesn't always have to mean stoic. I know I, I was taught as a kid, reverency meant I sat with my hands in my laps and I didn't dare sniffle loud. I, I look at Revelation and the tens of thousands surrounding the throne, crying out for all of eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's reverence. But it is not stoic. It is not lacking in emotion. It is not lacking in feeling. It is not lacking in power. And so we submit to one another out of our reverence, our awe of Christ, of the Father, seemingly add into their other the Spirit. And, and, I, and I pointed that out first before dealing with this issue of submitting to one another because this is the ground from which submission is birthed out of. If we hold a low level of respect or reverence or awe of God and what he's done in my life and what he's done in the lives of others, we will never submit to one another. 
But when we acknowledge what he has done and what he is doing and how he's doing that freely to all who would believe and to all who would accept, then we are reminded of who he is that we then may submit to one another. Let's look at what he says there again. Submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ. Uh, Submitting simply means this, that I am willing to yield to the wishes or the orders or even maybe the desires of others. That's what that means. It it means we we have a, a community of believers that are gathered, and it means that we all have the same, hopefully, goal in mind is that we want to yield ourselves to one another. Now, submission is often seen as a dirty word, right? You know, again, Paul's going to start in Ephesians 5.22 and start talking about men and women and then go on into other issues. And I mean, you start talking about that verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And man, oh man, I've had some counseling sessions about that one, right? But understand this. Submission doesn't mean that you're a doormat. Submission doesn't mean that you're a pushover. Let me ask you this. Was Jesus a doormat? Was Jesus a pushover? Scripture tells us that as a child, he submitted to his earthly parents. That as an adult, he continued to teach that he was submitting himself to the Father's will. That in the garden, though as a human, he prayed, if there's any way this can be done any different, his prayer then turned to submission, but not my will, but your will be done. And he submitted himself all the way to the cross. You think Jesus was a pushover? You think Jesus was a doormat? He modeled submission for us because he understood the will of the Father. And I want to take you back to verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Submission is, being, is made possible in the body of Christ by our submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God, yielding ourselves to Him, and by seeking to learn and understand what the will of God is, both in our lives individually and in our lives collectively. Now, there are places in the Scripture where God's will is clearly, uh, very clearly explained. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul talks about offering our bodies uh, as a sacrifice, our lives as a sacrifice, to be able to discern the will of God, to know the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, he writes that we avoid sexual immorality, that that is the will of God, that you would avoid that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, rejoice, pray, and give thanks, for this is the will of God. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 15, the will of God is that we do good so foolish or ignorant people would be silenced in their criticism of us. That is the will of God, he says. He goes on in 1 Peter 3, 17, that says sometimes the will of God may be for you to suffer because you've done good. Don't, don't hear a lot of sermons on that one, do we? That God's will in your life might be that you suffer for doing good? There are places in the Scripture where we know the full will of God. There are places in the Scripture where we don't fully know the will of God. And in those places, we place our, our, our faith and trust in Him. We pray, as John teaches us to pray in his letter of 1 John, that we pray in accordance with God's will. We ask God, according to your will, you do what you want to do here. But even in those unknown places, even in those unknown moments, we should still be seeking to know his will. Because when we seek to know his will, 
and understand his will, then we follow the model of Jesus who sought to know and understand the Father's will that he might submit. Last thing I'm going to say today is this. There's a place here in this book of Ephesians, if you want to turn over to the first chapter, in the beginning words of Ephesians, that I think the scriptures give us a really good understanding of one part of the will of God that we truly, truly do know. Look at verse 3 and just follow along with me from Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What's Paul saying here? He's saying God's glorious will was that Christ would come and that all who would trust in him would become sons and daughters through adoption into the family of God. Greater than any will God has for your life or mine. Greater than any will or plan that God has for any of us in our health or in our finances or in where we live or in what we do. Greater than all of that is God's will that he determined from before the foundations of the world that his son would come and he would live a perfect life and he would model submission all the way to the cross and he would beat death and he would be resurrected and through faith in that many would come to know him as sons and daughters in adoption through Christ into the family of God. That will of God alone should cause us to submit to one another. That will of God alone should cause us to come together in areas where we disagree or areas where we have differences or discrepancies and hammer out prayerfully and considerably and lovingly with one another, okay, what is the will of God in this? Not what is my will or your will, not what is my preference or your preference, but what is the will of God in this? Because the will of God is that churches should be filled. And the will of God is that churches should be filled that they would then go out. And the will of God is that churches would be filled so that they would then go out so that others would hear of the perfect will of God through Christ Jesus. And that happens when we submit to one another. But when we're doing this, when a church is wrapped up in the friction and not submitting, not yielding to one another, not prayerfully considering God's word over situations, those things don't happen. Let me give you an example to close out. Mark Clifton is an individual that works for North American Mission Board. And North American Mission Board back in the early 2000s made a strong push into church planning, and rightfully so. There are areas of our world, or of our nation, excuse me, where there are less people who know Jesus Christ than many third world countries where we send tons of missionaries to. Now, I don't think that's an either and. I think that's a both or. We ought to be considered or, uh, considerate and, and concerned about the areas closest to us and the areas most further away. That's a different sermon for a different day. But one of the things North American Mission Board has done since they made that big push in the early 2000s was they've now realized, oh, great, we're planning churches, but Southern Baptist churches are closing their doors by the hundreds every year. 
And so there's now a move called revitalization or replanting where the Southern Baptists are making a push to help churches that have plateaued or help churches that are declining and to help them to take a fresh look at their community and their church and what they're doing so that they can be revitalized, so that God can bring new birth to that, new life to that. And Mark Clifton does a, a Monday night uh, Facebook Live thing. He's kind of the, the director of that for now. And he was talking about a church that was in that, in that setting. They had, they had declined. They'd gotten down to like 35 members. They didn't know what they're doing. They asked Nam to come in and help and to give them resources and leading and so forth. But he said one of the biggest things they had to do was they had to submit to one another and submit to the Spirit of God when it came to their budget. Because for years, the church had done this really big public event and poured thousands of dollars from their budget into this really big public event. And there was, that, there was that heartfelt understanding of, we don't want to stop doing this. But there was that understanding of submitting to the Spirit and submitting to one another to say to one another, but can we use that money in a different direction for a greater good for the kingdom of God? Instead of one big event... Can we do multiple events through the community over the span of the year and reach more people? That little church of 35, I think, is now running about 300. Because they submitted themselves to the Spirit, and in doing so, they submitted themselves to one another out of the reverence for Christ and the kingdom. Oh, that we need to yield ourselves to the Spirit of God individually, every day, that we might then so collectively yield ourselves to the Spirit of God when he brings us together as the family of God. That is God's perfect and pleasing will. That all that would happen, that we would begin to see people saved. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, making the most of your time, Walking carefully, not unwise, addressing one another in joy, and giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.